The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Let's look at Galatians 2 and talk about freedom in Christ. Just thinking about that John 8 that Chris read, these Pharisees and religious leaders who demanded that they were free because they had Abraham as their father were really in bondage to Rome and they were in bondage even worse to their sin. Jesus told them, everyone who sins is a slave to sin and he told them, you're of your father the devil. Verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a a slave to sin. But verse 36, he says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What a thought. Free indeed. Free from slavery to sin. Free from slavery to death. It is no longer an enemy. The Bible calls death in the New Testament for Christians as falling asleep in the Lord. It's, it's something like just falling asleep and waking up in the presence of Christ. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why Paul could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. And these Galatians, we've seen the last two weeks, Paul, he, he's so concerned for them because they're abandoning the good news of freedom in Christ. And they're wanting to go under bondage to, to legalistic rules again from these Judaizers. And he, he basically says, uh, the last two times we've looked at Galatians, that there is no other gospel than the one he delivered. And this gospel is not man's gospel. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he's concerned to show that this gospel, that there is no other gospel, and that he received directly from the Lord, it is the same gospel that the apostles taught. He has unity with the other apostles. It's the same gospel that the disciples of Jesus received. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, um, those who seem to be influential, James and Peter and John, he says... um, They added nothing to me at the end of verse 6. What does he mean by that? It means they added nothing to his gospel. They didn't change or or fix his doctrine. They didn't like say, oh yeah, you're mostly right on the gospel, but you need to get this part right. He said, no, they added nothing to my message. And so for Paul, what's at stake is not the facts of the gospel, but the implications for Christian obedience. He was so concerned about the Galatians because they were taking the implications of the gospel and saying, well, we need to add something else for Christian obedience. And so the issue throughout the letter is the freedom that we have in Christ. There's four things we have freedom from in these 10 verses. First, we're free from the fear of important people. Or we could say we're free from partiality. We're free from the fear of important people in verses 1 to 3. And in verses um, 4 and 5, we're free from those who would enslave us. False teachers. False message. A false gospel. A false hope. We're free from those who would enslave us. Verses 6 to 9, we're free from ethnic prejudice. We're free from ethnic prejudice. And in verse 10, we're free to help others and serve others. We are actually freed up in the gospel to consider others more important than ourselves. We're free from self-absorption. We're free from from 
being so consumed with ourselves that others don't matter. And so he says the first one, we're free from the fear of important people, verses 1 to 3. Let me just read verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So verses 1 to 3, we're free from the fear of important people. Now the book of Acts describes four visits by Paul to Jerusalem. The first one is in Acts 9, 26 to 30, not long after his conversion. That's what we saw in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So that's the first visit. The second visit he did in response to, to a revelation, to take a gift to the poor who were suffering during a severe famine. That's Acts eleven twenty seven to 30. His third visit is the famous one in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where the Gentiles are officially welcomed into the church. And the fourth was when he was arrested and sent to Rome in Acts 21. So these are the four visits that, that the book of Acts describes. And the question here in, in chapter 2, maybe more of an academic question, is which visit was this? Well, we know it wasn't the first one because that's in Galatians 1. So is it the second or third one? We know it's not the fourth one because uh, this isn't the time in which he went and was imprisoned and sent to Rome. So the question is, was it Acts 11 or Acts 15? And, and I think it's Acts 11 uh, although some many commentators think it's Acts 15 because it ties in with the Jerusalem Council. But in Acts 11, we see Paul making the trip with Barnabas. We see he did it in response to a revelation in Acts 11, which is what he says here in chapter 2. He made the trip to help the poor in Acts 11 who were suffering from the famine, which fits nicely with verse 10 where he was asked to remember the poor by Peter. And If it was the same trip as Acts 15, the Gentile question would have been settled once and for all, and the Galatian churches would have heard the decision, and they would have known that the Judaizers had no authority from Jerusalem. So I think this is Acts 11. But what he's getting at here in Galatians 1 and 2, the more important thing to remember, is he was going up for famine relief, and as he did so, he consulted privately with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the other apostles, about the gospel. In fact, he says in verse 2, those who seem to be influential, verse 6 again, two times, those who seem to be influential, and in verse 9, those who seem to be pillars, James and Peter and John. 
And what the Judaizers were telling the Galatian churches is that Paul was inferior to the original apostles. They were saying, Paul has an inferior message because he is not one of the original. And he's, he's not one of those that, that was there when Jesus walked on the earth and we have the real gospel. But Paul says, no. I am an apostle. I received the message directly from Christ in chapter 1. There is no other gospel in chapter 1. And guess what? When I went up and talked to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they agreed it was the same gospel. They didn't add anything to my message, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship rather than the left foot of fellowship. But, but what I want to point out in tying it to freedom is that he says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, that I proclaim among the Gentiles and Adrian make sure I was not running or had run in vain. He says, I went to those who were, they seemed to be influential. They were the most influential in the church. But in verse 6, when he repeats it, what they are makes no difference to me, he says. Because why? Not because he wasn't impressed with them or because he wasn't grateful that the Lord had called them to be apostles. He knew God shows no partiality. Remember, this is what he had said in chapter one. I'm the least of all the apostles. I was born out of due time. Remember, we looked at it. He said, I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the reason why God shows no partiality is because all are sinners, shut up under sin, deserving his judgment. And it's mercy and his grace that allows any to be saved. So Paul knows Peter and James and John are sinners just like him. And they receive the same gospel message. And guess what? They're free just like him in Christ. One thing the gospel does for us is when we are united to Christ and we are saved and we're set free, We're free from the fear of important people. We don't have to be a man pleaser anymore. We can obey God rather than man and it's okay. And if you've ever lived your life as a people pleaser, if if that has been one of the characteristics of your life, this is a wonderful freedom, isn't it? Because when you're a people pleaser, you go around changing your, what you say, what you do, where you go, how you act, how you dress, all of those things because you want people to respect you and look up to you or consider you worthy of their friendship or whatever it is. And the wonderful news of the gospel is the God of the universe has accepted you in his son. And he is for you and not against you. And so now you're free from having to please people. It frees you, your mind and your heart and your thinking up. Now you can be who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ, rather than your identity in this world. I remember a music pastor at the church I grew up at was disciplined out of the church for slander. It was a terrible thing. I ran into him a couple years after he was disciplined out of the church. We happened to go to this dinner at the same time. And he was very angry and bitter towards the church, unrepentant. And it just broke my heart. And what he said to me was, he said, they took away my reputation. They ruined my reputation. That's all he cared about was his reputation. 
and I was much younger than him, and I, I didn't feel like it was my place to, to rebuke him or correct him. I really didn't know how to respond. I was about 24 years old at the time. If I was meeting him now, what I would say is, what about Christ's reputation? The one who made himself of no reputation so that you could become a child of God. Isn't your identity in Christ far more valuable than your identity and reputation with the world or even the church? You ought to repent. You ought to repent. That's what I should have told him. He was in slavery to his reputation. Well, he says, we're free from that. We're free from that. In fact, he's, he mentions Titus in verse 3. He says, Titus was pressured to be circumcised, but he wasn't. Now, this is a, a big deal in the church at that time. In fact, verses 4 and 5, the second freedom is we're free from those who would enslave us. See, the, the question that was going on in the churches is, do Gentiles have to become Jewish to become part of the church? Because Jewish thinking and, and, and partly from Old Testament law was this idea that you had to become Jewish if you wanted to worship the true and living God. And what these Judaizers were doing is they were applying the Old Testament law to New Testament Christians in a way that was unbiblical and led to legalism. And Paul brings Titus with him who's a Greek. He's a Gentile. He doesn't have any Jewish blood. And there were those in the church who were saying he ought to be circumcised if he's really going to be a godly person. This was the sign of the covenant. In fact, Paul, I think, ends up using it as an example, as a test case for this issue of freedom. Paul says in verse 4, there were false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ. So this is an issue of freedom in Christ. Paul takes the vocabulary in verse 4 from the world of espionage. After he'd gone through the Galatian churches, there were Jewish Christians who went in behind him and conducted covert operations, undercover reporting. They sneaked in to see what the Gentile churches were up to and what Paul was teaching. And these men were more than informants. They were legalists who wanted to put people under bondage again to try and gain justification through keeping the Mosaic law in all its parts, even the ones that Jesus fulfilled. They're called Judaizers because they tried to impose the law of Judaism on Christians. But Paul knew they didn't even really understand the gospel. That's why in verse 4 he calls them false brothers. Brothers because they claimed to know Christ, but false because they didn't really follow his teaching. Man. Now circumcision is no longer a hot topic for the church. But the deeper issue is still relevant Circumcision, according to Philippians 3, Paul says, stood for the whole law, Mosaic law. And the issue was trying to obtain a righteous standing before God on the basis of your own righteous works. So what Paul says, the greater issue here is justification by faith alone in Christ alone, in his finished work alone. And Paul was determined, he says, not to yield for a moment. I am not going to give any ground on this. This is a hill to die on. 
and it came out of his pastoral concern and love for his wayward children. He says in chapter 4, verse 19, I'll read it to you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, Paul must have looked around and he thought, what's a good metaphor for the greatest pain one could experience? He said, mom's given birth. He said, that's the kind of pain I have, wanting Christ to be formed in you. And I hear that you're going for another gospel, which is really no gospel. And it's going to lead you astray. It's going to put you in slavery and bondage again. And I am in anguish until Christ is formed in you. You see, this isn't just a doctrinal argument. This isn't just ink on a page or academics arguing in a school. This is of utmost concern to pastors and their flock. What are you going to believe about the gospel? Are you going to get the good news right? Because if you get it wrong, you'll be in slavery. You won't have freedom. There's a reason why we don't address every false teaching out there from the pulpit. I don't need to be in the business of going out and hunting wolves all on the internet. There's plenty of them out there. I don't have time for that. And I want to be known more for what I'm for than rather what I'm against. But there is a time when pastors have to address things from the pulpit. And it's when false teaching invades the church. And starts affecting the gospel and starts affecting the flock. We're called a shepherd. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says we want to be free from those who would enslave us. And those who would enslave us are false teachers who take the gospel and they add to it and it puts us into bondage. Colossians 2 says, Paul says in the church at Colossae, there are those who have these teachings, Colossians 2, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And you can see it's tied once again to Jewish regulations of cleanness and uncleanness. Don't handle that or you're going to be unclean. Don't taste that food. Don't eat that pork or you're going to be unclean. Don't touch that unclean person or you're going to be unclean. He says they refer to things that are perished when they're used according to human precepts and teachings. He says they have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They sound right in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. It's in your Facebook feed. Every day. Those who say the latest secret to the Christian life is doing this or not doing that. Some sort of asceticism. Extreme couponing. If you want to be a good steward of God's money, you have to spend hours cutting out coupons. Whatever it is. I'm joking about that, but that... (laughs) He says these things have the appearance of wisdom, but guess what? They're of no value in stopping fleshly indulgence. They don't deal with the heart. You want to know what deals with the heart? The word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when someone is born again and united to Christ. 
And so guess what we need to hear again and again? The gospel. And we need to live out of the gospel. We need to live out of who we are in Christ. So Paul's worked up. I'm getting a little worked up. This is an issue of freedom. And we as Americans, we love our freedom, don't we? But I tell you what, the freedom we have in Christ far outweighs. It's far greater and far more liberating than American freedom. I praise God for American freedom. I do think this is the greatest country in the world to live in. I praise God for it. But you know what? Freedom in Christ is infinitely better. My soul is at rest in Christ. My soul is not in rest by being an American citizen. In fact, I can be enslaved to a ton of things in America. We got plenty of idols. We got plenty of bondage. We got plenty of brokenness. I see it all the time. But the freedom that Christ brings is freedom indeed. It really is. It's truly freedom. And then he says in verses 6 to 9, we have freedom from ethnic prejudice. This is huge. The Jews of Jesus' day had a problem with racism. It was us and them. It was Jew and Gentile. I mean, think about that. The Jewish people said every other nation, tribe, people, and tongue is Gentile. And they're less than dogs. One of the problems of the Judaizers is they could not imagine that God would accept Gentiles just as they were. Instead, they taught that Gentiles had to become and act like Jews. And let me be clear, racism is a sin that must be confronted just like any other sin. Racism violates the integrity and the truth of the gospel. And the cross is what brings healing and unity. When Jesus said, go to every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And he said, make disciples of all the nations. And when you see in Revelation, they're gathered around the throne at the end of the age. Every nation and tribe and people and tongue worshiping God and Jesus. That is a picture of racial reconciliation that is beautiful. Because we're all made in the image of God and he's in the business of restoring the image of God in us. And it brings him great glory. And I strongly desire, I want to promote and live for ethnic diversity both in our church and in our community. It's how I grew up in Vallejo. And Paul here is saying that the the vertical reconciliation between God and man through Christ will bear fruit in horizontal reconciliation between nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. It has to. Because we're one in Christ. Turn over to Galatians 3, two chapters over. This is, I mean, he's going to bring it home. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, and none of us deserve it. And it's all by grace. And we ought to fight for this. We ought to promote this. Racial reconciliation in our country is a mess right now. It's in the news every day. You would think that nothing happened this last hundred years. Because the sin of man is still there. And racism is alive and well. And we as Christians ought to be on the forefront of eliminating it and showing what unity is in Christ. 
over in Ephesians 2. Actually, we don't have time to turn there, but he says the dividing wall of partition is torn down. And all of us who are Gentiles, who are far off from God, without hope and without God, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Well, he says in verse 10, we are free to help others. But I just want you to get this. I love at the end of the doctrinal discussion, the apostles get practical with Christian life and obedience. What's important is not the Jewish rituals, the dietary laws, or the Sabbaths. What's important is to remember the poor. That's what James said in James 2, 15 to 17. True religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their need. The poor here in the context is the church in Jerusalem during the famine. And isn't it ironic that it's the Gentile churches of Galatia and Asia Minor that sent the money to the church at Jerusalem to minister to them because they were the poor during the famine. And Paul brings it. Helping the poor is not the gospel, but it's a fruit of the gospel. Right? We don't want to reduce the gospel to social work. But we don't ever want to think that because we know the truth of the gospel that somehow we don't have to help the poor. Or somehow it's beyond us or above us or we can turn our ears and eyes away from it. We ought to be those who are known for helping the poor. Martin Luther wrote, next to the proclamation of the gospel, it's the task of a good pastor to be mindful of the poor. And so, just by way of closing, freedom in Christ is, tr- is tied to the truth of the gospel and the unity of the church. You see, when a church is divided, as the Galatian church was divided, freedom erodes, freedom evaporates. I've been a part of a church split. It's a terrible place to be when there's division in the church. But when there's unity because of the truth of the gospel, the church is one of the best places to come because you know that you're broken and messed up and you need to be with the people of God and you need to hear that gospel message again and you need to sing with your brothers and sisters and remind yourself of the truth that there is a God in heaven who sits on his throne and a Savior Jesus who's coming back and the Holy Spirit has been given to us and put in our hearts and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. We need to hear that truth over and over and we need to be around people who amen that truth because we are weak and broken and and sometimes we feel like we're in bondage to this world and our lives and our circumstances and we need to be reminded if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And so we want to have a pattern of cooperating around the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul desired We want to see this work of evangelization go out. We want to make disciples of all the nations. And we want to serve the poor as well as bring the gospel to them. We come to the table this morning. This is a privilege that we have as Christians. Those of you who've put your faith in Christ, those of you who are followers of Jesus, to come to this table is a privilege. Why? Because it is a celebration. It is a celebration of the fact that we have a Savior who died for us and he's coming back to get us. And we do this as often as we do it in remembrance of him. And and we do this until he comes again. 
And guess what? When he comes back, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have a party. There's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I don't know, the weddings I go to, there's a huge party. Sometimes we think of the fact uh, this is a very sober thing. A very solemn thing that, that we gather together around this table. And, and sometimes the, the tenor is that, man, you better examine yourself. Because you know what happened in that Corinthian church? Some of them were killed. Well, the Corinthian church was showing racism. Those who came ahead of time were not waiting for those who came later. They were showing partiality. They weren't waiting for the whole church to be there. Perhaps the poor, those who were slaves. And they were starting the party without some of their brothers and sisters. That was a problem. They were taking in an unworthy manner where they weren't remembering the finished work of Christ and the unity we have as a body. I don't think we have to fear that with the way we do it. It would be nice if we could have a big giant feast every month, a party, and have bread and have food and have drink and celebrate the finished work of our Savior. But logistics demand that we have these little cups and little wafers. And, and I don't want to disparage it. I, this is this is just the, the practicality of celebrating this. And what's more important than the, how we do it? And I love that the, the, the Bible didn't give us the, the method of how to do it. There's great freedom in church history for how to celebrate this. But what we desire is a heart that remembers Christ, remembers that the Father sent the Son, remembers that Jesus poured out his Spirit upon us so that we'll be with him forever. Remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And when you take this, this ought to bring great joy to your heart this morning that you are a child of God and you are set free in Christ. And you can face whatever you have to face this afternoon or tomorrow morning at work or whatever the circumstances are. You're free in Christ. Greater is the one who's in you than the one who's in the world. There's nothing that can separate you from the Father's love. These are all realities you have. Father, thank you for sending your son. I thank you for his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Thank you that we have freedom in Christ. We want to remember our Lord and Savior this morning. We want to remember the hope we have in Christ. And I pray that my sisters and my brothers would be filled with joy as they partake of this Lord's table together that they would be encouraged and strengthened by the fact that we are a body of Christ who believe this gospel message and that there are churches all over the world taking this communion today, that we participate in the greater body of Christ. And there's coming a day when Jesus is coming back and we're going to have a party and it's going to be a great celebration. In Jesus' name. Respond to this message or learn more. Please visit calvarytruth.org.